0: Attention, world. This is Salvage One calling from the edge of space on the International Space We are a privately owned and launched spaceship on a purely
1: commercial venture. A harmless little business venture.
0: Hi again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the I M P. My name is Matthew Porter, and I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And after our digression, the last couple of episodes into music and movies about music, we're going back to television
1: now, specifically television of the seventies. Uh, this is the this is the point where you get to say that you want to build a podcast, go back to your childhood, salvage up all the content that's up there bring it back and then show it to ian right that's pretty much it (laughs) there's a lot of value there just waiting for someone to take it exactly
0: this is uh we're going to a tv series starring andy griffith (sighs) now to some people andy griffith is best known for the conveniently named andy griffith show when he played uh the sheriff of a place called mayberry to some others he is known for starting in the mid 80s playing a very shrewd but folksy lawyer named matlock but to me andy griffith is always going to be first and foremost harry broderick
1: owner and operator of jettison salvage i had not seen a lot of stuff with him but i can always immediately tell he's a very talented actor he is because he's one of those actors where he could be in the background of a shot eating a sandwich and you'll still pay attention to him in the background eating a sandwich as much as anyone up front talking about today's plotline.
0: Somehow he does have that presence where he's always playing somebody who's very laid back and folksy. And yet he has that compelling presence that a leading man needs to have. And you know, there's a, a movie he was in called A Face in the Crowd. Ooh. I don't know that it really qualifies for the, the podcast, but it's probably a movie you should see. And it was one of his first starring roles that was, was a, a pretty remarkable movie. I won't say much more about it, but okay, it, it will do nothing but solidify your impression of the kind of actor that Andy Griffith is. Uh,
1: he, he really does carry this show, though, in he some does. ways. As much as the other act, the other rest of the crew are good character actors and they're pulling a lot of interesting stuff in. A lot of the show, oh, and especially that pilot movie, Salvage, is pulled by him. I think.
0: I think so. Now, this yeah, the series we're talking about, the series was called Salvage One, but the the pilot, the the, the two hour TV movie that introduced it, was simply called Salvage. Yeah, he. It, it's a it's a good ensemble that they put together, but it is very much an Andy Griffith vehicle. No pun intended and is very much something that is driven both by his presence as an actor, but also by the character that he plays who's driving everything forward.
1: Oh yeah. It, it is playing a businessman who is very focused on the bigger picture of what he's working with, which is where the crazy idea for that pilot movie can even come to a man. When he's looking at the grander picture of what he's doing instead of the logistical steps of each part. He'll figure out those as he goes. And they do a great job of introducing these parts of his personality
0: right at the very beginning of the movie as it opens. Uh, We see him as somebody who, well, he's very skilled. He's a, a very skilled pilot, for example. But we see him buying an airplane, driving a hard bargain as to how much he's willing to pay for it. And then selling different pieces of it to different people at what adds up to be an amazing profit because he knows one guy who needs an engine from this vintage biplane, somebody else who wants the shell of a vintage, biplane like this to park outside of his restaurant. And uh, he just knows how to put these pieces together and to put these people and connections together
1: to, to make the kind of deals that he wants. And we see that he's a, he's just sly enough to get away with certain things when he, up Up charges because there it's it's seen it's stuff there's a bullet hole in the seat. He sells the body of the plane for a little bit more because it's got that authenticity, and then once he gets it to the guy that's taking the engine out, he shoots a shot through the seat to make sure it has the bullet hole he said <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is just the right amount of clever. He won't look someone in the eye and
0: say it has a bullet hole from a dogfight in 1916. But he will just say, and the seat's got a bullet hole, and he'll make sure it has a bullet hole.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> and he has has a dream. The ulti- he's, He runs a salvage yard, so he's buying and selling. Some things he's buying and tearing him apart for scrap. Other things he's buying and selling because he knows the market. Other things he's buying... And piecing them out, like the airplane, and getting the highest profit he can. And he's also, he's not just buying vehicles or even local things. He's like buying th- ocean-going oil rigs and selling them from one country to another. He's never making so much profit that he never doesn't have to worry about money ever again. Because he's always putting it in, into the next deal that he wants to swing.
1: Yeah, it, it's that chain of, of constantly searching for the next opportunity. It's almost like he's a man who is as thrilled by the hunt as he is by the, the action of dealing with it once he's got it.
0: Right. He wants to, to, to know that he made the biggest deal or the most interesting deal that anybody's ever done. And that's what he has his sights on because here it is, 1979, and he wants to build his own spaceship so that he can go to the moon and salvage all the stuff that uh, NASA's Apollo program left there. And this is just ten years after the first moon landing. So less than ten years since the, the last one in uh, Apollo seventeen, and yeah, you know, there's a bunch of stuff up there.
1: Oh yeah, there's I, land. There's landing modules. There's a couple of rovers. There's things like that.
0: Yeah, there's all this equipment. There's the you know, the, the the descent stage on the LEMs and the rovers and uh, various equipment that they didn't need to bring back. I think you said golf clubs. <laughs> Probably. Probably. And, of course, Moon Rocks, they also have their value as far as collectability. And he figures, I think he calculates that this was going to be worth $12 million in salvage if when he brings it back. Yeah, which seemed low to me. It did, but again, this is in 19, uh, 1979 dollars. What would $12 million be in 2021 dollars? $26.57 million. That still seems kind of low. Still
1: seems kind of low. I mean, low. it's not
0: bad, but... To, uh, to offset the cost of building your own spaceship and mounting its, uh, its launch. But the f- most fun part of that movie is seeing the process of him assembling his team and then assembling his spaceship. Oh, yeah. Because he's not trying to build a homebrew Saturn V to get to the moon. That would be ridiculous. Instead... He has recruited two experts, and we see him recruiting these people, two experts to handle uh, a method of getting to the moon that is going to be simpler, more cost-effective, not quite as safe
1: as what NASA is willing to do. So he needs a pilot who knows his stuff well enough to pilot a very different way of getting up to the moon and, and... achieving escape velocities and such. And he needs a scientist who's willing to play with some more experimental fuel options that can get them there the way they need to. So Harry recruits Skip Carmichael,
0: who wasn't a NASA astronaut. And Skip didn't fit in with the command and authority structure of NASA, as well as uh, they want their astronauts to. So he was no longer with NASA. He's selling used cars when, uh, when we first meet him. But he has this idea and literally wrote a book that Harry has read about translinear acceleration.
1: It sounds so buzzwordy.
0: I mean, essentially, he's talking about a constant acceleration of, I'm guessing, around 1G, because that conveniently means when they're flying in their spaceship, they don't have to simulate zero gravity for their TV movie. Hey! But instead of an enormous thrust. Um, at the beginning of, of the mission, getting rid of that stage, orbiting the earth, another burn of enormous thrust to put you in an orbit that'll get you into lunar orbit. He is just, we start off with a thrust and we stay at that same exact acceleration and we get to the moon.
1: It also very fortunately means that every time they're doing their miniature work or their uh, composite work to make their spaceship fly, it can just kind of float around and move the way it needs to. It's very much anti-gravity by way of thrust jets. (laughs) And this is where I'm going to just immediately jump forward to the fact that I was bewildered to learn Isaac Asimov himself was a science advisor for this series and yeah. movie yep that is really cool but it's also kind of one of the thing he wasn't an advisor for all the episodes and this show it is i want to say it gets like halfway there with all of its science
0: yeah you can tell that they they used their science advisory budget in the movie and didn't necessarily renew it for the series
1: oh yeah and, and even in the movie portion, there are things where they start going odd. For example, their fuel source.
0: Yeah, that's the one for which he recruits Melanie Mel Slozar, who was a rocket scientist, expert in, in uh, fuel systems. And now she's working in special effects for movies. Because she knows explosives and she can't get a job with the space program anymore. And she's developed a fuel that has really great energy density, would work extremely well as a fuel source for a translinear acceleration uh, spacecraft. It's just not as safe as NASA would be willing to use because it's very volatile. It's easy to send it uh, over the edge, it will release toxic fumes within. Uh, uh, a certain temperature range before it would blow up. So it's not really nice stuff to play with. So they decide to use this to fuel the rocket that they have uh, taking off from their junkyard somewhere in Los Angeles County. Yeah. They, they use monohydrazine. I love 70s science buzzwords. I,
1: I don't know. That sounds likely to me. Okay. We need to get an intro sound effect for this because Ian's going to dive into science for a moment. Please do. Hydrazine, also known as N2H4, is an actual component in rocket fuel. I fell down this Google search rabbit hole after watching the, this pilot movie. Monohydrazine implies one of something. So either they've taken a nitrogen off, at which point they're flying based on ammonium, or... They've added an oxygen.
0: Well, how many uh, hydrogen atoms does hydrazine have? Four. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know how you could build that with only one hydrogen atom. Yeah.
1: Or why you'd want to. Yeah, it's like I tried to <laughs> figure out what it is this, this is. But it's the fact that it's, that's where it's like this gets partway on all of its science. Actual hydrazine is an actual component <laughs> of rocket fuel. You know, they, they like to keep their babble close to believable and i like exactly it's it's close techno babble and that is simultaneously something that will draw me in with enthusiasm but it results in this not fridge horror or fridge (laughs) logic where you're later you know getting a snack from the fridge and you something dawns on you it's just a fridge frustration for me because i'll be like going later i'm like but that doesn't work. That's what that's
0: what this segment of, of our podcast is. This is Ian's fridge stem.
1: Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> it's he's
0: figuring out the science, technology, engineering, and math sometime after we've finished watching the show. Absolutely. Or sometimes when he's com- commanded me to hit pause so that he can take this in and try to figure it out.
1: Oh, yeah. This is, I, yeah I, I mean, I'm already warning the listeners. This isn't the, the only time I'm going to divert <laughs> like this in this episode alone. But this show, it's... Yeah, it's, it's close, it's near field science in yeah. that sense.
0: And similarly, linear acceleration, that makes perfect sense. What trans-linear acceleration is, I'm not entirely sure. But it sounds cool. It sounds cool. So we've got our team, we've got Harry, we've got Skip, our astronaut, we've got Mel, our our physicist and fuel scientist, and they start building a rocket. They get surplus engines from NASA. They build other parts of it from stuff that you would have in
1: a big and well-stocked junkyard. A Tesco tanker truck and a cement mixer. <laughs> and it
0: really is kind of an ingenious spaceship design. It really is in that as you would expect, most of it is a big cylinder that's filled with fuel, but not nearly as much fuel as you would need using Apollo-style rockets. And it's built with a diaphragm that essentially shrinks the fuel containment vessel as uh, the ship burns fuel, creating space for cargo. Brilliant. Brilliant.
1: It's actually really clever. And they also do a really good job as you see this entire, I mean, the first half or more of the movie is them just building this team, kind of doing introductions for each of them? He's got his ground crew of scientifically minded people that uh Harry had hired to work in his scrapyard even before this project, kind of almost almost like he was building the team before any he told anyone what the team was for that definitely but is the impression he's I got this entire group of people which are way more scientifically educated than a lot of people would assume the team at the scrapyard is.
0: I think especially in the, the movie, it was all built around a sense of NASA wasn't what it used to, and America's space program had dropped the ball. So you had all these experts willing and able to do more in space. And yeah, some of the, the people who worked for him at the, uh, at the junkyard were ex-NASA engineers. And uh, they, had, they couldn't get jobs with NASA anymore.
1: Oh, yeah. He's building this crew, and we're watching as they also each describe like, the positives and negatives of the thing they're having to do. You've got, uh, our fuel is great, but if it gets into the wrong temperature ranges, it can turn into this lethal gas. We've got this method of acceleration and such is great, but we have to be very careful on reentry. You've got a ground crew, which is saying, we've got all the skills to be able to navigate this for them, but we don't have the computer big enough, so we have to figure out what we're doing with that. And it's a very excellent like lesson in how to foreshadow, because yes, you can see all the parts that will go wrong, but they are so well integrated into the story of everything he's, they're setting up that will go right that when the things do inevitably, for the sake of attention and story plot anyway, they run into the challenges already described, it still feels dramatic instead of feeling like you're fi- – like, oh, this is the thing we knew was going to happen. It's like, okay, no, no, they These are smart people who will present the positives and negatives. And this happens to be a story where the, the – triumph over every one of those negatives as they achieve those positives.
0: Yes, there's a lot of really good setup and payoff, but it is, it's hidden in a complex, a sufficiently complex story that it's not obvious. You don't really know when someone's saying, here's a potential problem, you're not already knowing that this is going to happen in act three, because there are maybe, there may be other things they said that didn't go wrong, but everything that does go wrong that they have to overcome it makes logical sense because it
1: follows from all the planning we get to see them do. Mm-hmm. If anything, the one thing that goes wrong, question mark, gets in their way, question mark, that they, 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 no one foreshadowed properly is the FBI. Yes.
0: Yeah, their, their main antagonist in this, I would say, is um, a special agent, Klinger, from the FBI, mm-hmm. played who, by
1: Richard Jekyll. Who feels like... He feels like a character from a completely different show that's cameoing. I feel like he's had two seasons of something before this, and he happens to be coming in on this show as well. <laughs> like, these are the further adventures
0: of uh, Special Agent
1: Klinger. Absolutely, because it is so hard to introduce a character who is already this far to the end of his rope in certain things. He's just like already this tired with what's going on this fast. Takes skill or more seasons than they've given the movie.
0: And he gets involved because someone, it's kind of promising, I suppose, that red flags are raised by all the different things that are being purchased by this jettison salvage. And then the fact that it also includes the components for manufacturing monohydrazine. They start to draw the conclusion that he's building missiles. And he's going to, he, maybe he's going to test them, maybe he's going to fire them, maybe he's just going to sell them on the open arms market. But we've got to put a stop to that. Yeah, so that's is, why they put the, the junkyard under 24-hour surveillance.
1: This is a guy who has made international trade deals before for ships and such. That's true. And he's
0: got connections all over the place. But no, nope, he's not making a, uh, a missile, he is making a spaceship. And that does not really... Calm uh, the FBI down very much. No, at least not this special agent.
1: It puts them into a panic, but the one panic they weren't ready for, in some ways, <laughs> it's like we were prepared to to have all of these other possible scenarios. None of those were spaceship, and we don't know how to respond to spaceship. So, <laughs> and a lot of what we see in the middle of the story is
0: him assembling and testing the components of this rocket while trying to keep them hidden from the, uh, the FBI. So he arranges for his whole crew to scatter throughout the entire junkyard with all whatever tools they need to make as much noise as they possibly can just doing junkyard things while they do a thrust test of the rocket engines.
1: Which is a brilliant scene. It, it felt like an, a, uh, a performance of Stomp was about to break out at any moment with the way they kept cutting to all the people <laughs> in the junkyard. But it's it's those little moments where it's it's a lot of well placed B roll of the other things going on to make this happen, and it it works so well. Overall, this this show is much more. It's a character driven thing, but it's also extremely stylistic in some weird ways. There's something about its its framing and its spacing which. The rooms the characters are put in always feel a little small. The environments are always... I always thought the camera was placed a little lower or a little like catty corner to where I'd expect, like they're trying to find space for the camera. It makes the entire thing feel a little more ragtag in the right ways. But they they do all these things to hide their tests and such, and then their solution to the computer is to actually like hack a NASA system. That's the
0: one clearly illegal thing that they do. Uh, apart from maybe some zoning issues about what they're doing in this, uh, this junkyard is they, they, you yeah, they hack into the computer of an aerospace company. So, and I gather it's because it was a NASA contractor. They have a computer available that can calculate the, uh, the guidance, uh, co- um, the parameters that they need to program into their ship. Because, yep, you know, they're building this on a, on a tight budget. They can't put a computer in their spaceship. Computers are expensive. This is <laughs> 1979. A, a, we'd have to make the spaceship twice as big. And B, we can't afford that. I glance down
1: at my cell phone and the, the mobile game I'm playing and I kind of <laughs> feel sheepish for a moment.
0: So they have this nifty acoustic connection that they use to tap into this uh, computer at the aerospace contractor in, I, t- I think, Texas, and load their program into it and, and get
1: the numbers they need. They're finally ready to launch, and that is just a scene in and of itself. Them finally heading to the moon. Yep. Because that's where kind of all the facades have to drop away, and everyone has to become aware of what they're doing.
0: Yeah, once you're, you're launching a rocket towards the moon, you really can't hide it anymore. And, of course, spoilers. We've given enough spoilers. But there are plenty of spoilers about this show in our conversation here. Um.
1: Yes, it is. Yes, audience, this is the point in which a nuclear explosion occurs on said moon, (laughs) and it becomes a chase film as they try to chase this runaway moon the entire way. No, wait, that's a different show. Uh, I'm getting for the crossover now.
0: (laughs) Okay, now once again making my note to check uh, archive of our own. (laughs) Yay! Or the salvage space 1999 crossover, or to write it. I don't know which. But sadly, um, the, the plan was always for Harry, whose dream this is, and who's the, an ex, who is an experienced pilot, who is a, uh, a fighter pilot in Korea, and Skip, a trained astronaut, to be the flight crew. But in the end, Harry can't go because they can't get the fuel manageable enough. Somebody actually on the flight crew has to be the expert in the fuel. So Melanie and Skip wind up going to the moon.
1: And that's one of those things, I can't tell if they were trying to suggest anything of those two characters, but at the very least, they play off of each other very well, because the, the in-ship banter is very, very effective here. It's it's a very 70s
0: kind of, uh, of setup they've got. Skip is always flirting with Melanie, and I think they knew each other from NASA as well. Um... She is amused but not really interested, so that's about as far as that goes.
1: That makes sense. But they head up to the moon, and by the time they're getting up there, they have gotten pretty famous as the, the information's gone around the news and such.
0: And they, uh, they wind up with a, a problem.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm trying to remember which problem struck
0: them first. Well, I believe the sequence was that they lost their. I don't know what kind of a connection they had if they were having new coordinates radioed to them, but essentially they lost their their guidance computer because somebody had to change a tape on the computer they happened to hack into at this aerospace company. So they had to land on, on manual on the moon. Ah, yes. Which they do, but they damage one of their rockets. So they have to take their time to fix that as well as gather up whatever salvage they wanted to. And they never make this really clear, but the Apollo program went to a lot of different sites. So they must have picked one and salvaged it. Yeah. They don't never make that clear. But then they also, they don't have their guidance data or the trip home.
1: And they need that. They really need that. So it's ground crew running around trying to kind of admit what they did and negotiate new systems. And eventually they get NASA itself to agree and give them in computer information to navigate them home.
0: Well, the guys at this aerospace company, they're happy to help. And they were essentially saying, gosh, we'd have made this all work so much better for you if you just told us and asked for our help in the first place. Not very practical. It's easy to say that once the, the launch has gone successfully. But yeah, they have to make a deal with um, with the U.S. government, and it's essentially to sell all the salvage back to the to the United States government at a very low cost in exchange for help getting the crew back home.
1: Yeah, suddenly the profit margins on this entire project are out from underneath them in many ways. But their people will get to come back home, and that's the more important part. When push comes to shove, Harry the businessman who's all about being able to figure out the big picture of this and the big picture of whatever it is he's salvaging and working on. The biggest picture is always the people. Yes. And that's one of the key points to the entirety of the movie in the end and a huge part of the show. It's always about the people and he will, he will toss a project down the drain to save the people. And he will take a project. Even if it's not going to be worth much. If it's here to help the people at first. And that's powerful.
0: And there's a line there that we see with the, the character of Harry. Where on the one hand. He, won't, he may do something that's not 100% honest. Like uh, about the bullet hole in the airplane seat. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand. He is very. Very set upon standards of honesty and loyalty to the people he works with. And you never really know exactly where that line is, but it's always clear there is a line and whether
1: something's on one side or the other. Oh, yeah. he, he In some ways, I think he put the bullet hole in that plane because he knew that the guy he's selling it to will be happier Yes, buying that plane with that hole in it and he's here as much because he's happy to make this guy is happy and the fact that he's happy enough to give me a bunch of money is great
0: that's a great way to see it he is he is literally increasing the value of this item to the person who wants to buy it for that value and if the, that person doesn't know where the bullet hole really came from that's best for everybody
1: mhm the 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 disney imagineer who paints who 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 plans and has a team paint up a a forced perspective area to make a street feel longer is doing so because the people will be excited at how wide and expansive this street corner looks instead of thinking, oh, I'm tricking a bunch of people. And I'm sad about that is my thought process there. Wait, they do what?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I paid how much for Disney World tickets? And you're telling me those aren't real buildings? (laughs) Oh, man. Now I know how the restaurant guy felt when he learned the truth about the bullet hole. Oh goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: But that, that kind of mentality is very much in this. So when he, when he throws the, the profit margin of the project aside for the people, it's moving and it's a very good character scene for that. And that kind of gets paid off later in another way. I think at the very end and to skip forward, They've become very famous for doing this. And in some ways this becomes the best PR stunt he could have ever planned. No question. They they all become world famous. They all become world famous and a lot of the series is in some ways him recouping the cost he lost of the space program with an entire season and five episodes of season 2 of other projects many of which are worth money. That are all predicated on, the, you're the guys who went to space, right? And I think that that works out well, very well.
0: And the, the kind of fame they get is like another aspect of what we were saying before about NASA being a shell of its former self and the space program having dropped the ball. They also seem to be showing that the public has a real hunger for this kind of exploration and for heroes who go out and do this. And here's a private entrepreneur Picking it up and, and carrying the ball, um, and you know, the, the the final landing when everybody gets home safe, they they don't have. I think I don't know why they couldn't land in the junkyard, but they wind up landing well, in a big public park. It's because it's it because their fuel
1: issues that start oh, causing right. uh, toxic gases to leak into the uh, the main chamber, which means that they're not actually conscious to be able to pilot themselves for a while, and that means that they're. Their amount of fuel and their course and such is all off, and they find the most convenient area nearby that they can land in at that point.
0: Oh, right. Now now I remember wondering, okay, so they land this tube that's emitting lots of toxic vapors in the middle of a public park. Okay, yes. At least it's outdoors. But that's a big, uh, a big celebration once people f- stop running away uh, <laughs> uh, in terror. And Special Agent Klinger is there to help get the doors open and make sure that Skip and Mel are okay, and he's, he's kind of on their side in spite of himself.
1: Yeah, he's the, he's the reluctant member in many ways, because he respects everything they do, but he is dedicated to the job enough to be the one to call them out.
0: So they have this TV movie in which we see the beginning of this plan to build a homebrew spacecraft and bring it to the moon and bring salvage back and do it all as safely as possible Uh, although willing to cut more corners than NASA did in terms of fuel safety and such and that was was great and then they build a TV series and try to continue
1: that story and the TV series is interesting because it's not about space it's about all the other wild kind of advanced sci- like sci-fi e and where that draws this line it's a bunch of like adventures of this team performing other salvage missions and survey missions and such all across the globe and all like, coming back to their main base but they wind up interacting with different people and doing projects and sneaking off to do their own thing at various times this is very much DIY Thunderbirds. Yes,
0: yes, it is. I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> this is you know, Junkyard Thunderbirds. Junkyard Thunderbird. You've got the millionaire and the ex astronaut and the, the science expert, and uh, and they're gonna build a rocket ship
1: and fly around the, the world in it doing things. Absolutely. And and the fact that you know, Thunderbird is there, Thunderbirds is all about like the the we've got the gadgets to be able to do it, and we'll figure out the problem and solve it. But there's also something about the, we'll figure out the problem. Now I've just got to build the thing that fixes the problem. <laughs> I got some duct tape. Actually, they don't use a lot of duct tape. They use no duct tape here. They could have that used some, some
0: good tape, or I don't know if they had the silicone rescue tape in 1979, but there's certainly some problems that would have been solved
1: quickly by it. I was, uh, when we were watching, it was being explained to me about the fact that, like, Duct tape, which just wasn't as common a use item at that point. And I'm just like, I can't imagine <laughs> trying to write this show without like, not writing it and just throwing the sticky note that says duct tape down onto the table in the middle of every episode would feel impossible to me. So that's a whole tangent in <laughs> and of itself. But there's a whole lot of a, okay, how do we retrofit the vulture, which is the name of the ship?
0: Yes, its official FAA designation is Salvage 1, Experimental Hover Vehicle, because it it didn't fit any other categories.
1: But they they needed to register the thing if they wanted to fly it a second time. But yeah, it's the Vulture. The Vulture. But it's how to retrofit the Vulture to make it do X this time. Or, we brought the Vulture to a place and there's a lot more going on here than we thought.
0: And there are different kinds of stories that we see throughout the series, and we haven't watched all of them. I probably did watch all of them when uh, when it was first aired in 79, although there were four episodes that were made and never aired in the U.S.
1: They were aired so in the U.K.,
0: though. Yeah, we haven't watched those. If we can find those, we will. But there are there are some space episodes in the series.
1: Space episodes.
0: But there are others where... They happen to use the vulture to fly somewhere in the world and have an adventure like meeting Bigfoot and saving a monkey scientist.
1: <laughs> that was a weird one. Yeah, that was the I very thought, first I that regular was, series. I thought that one was going to be really crazy. And the fact that it's it's Bigfoot and the monkey scientist is what, the first episode of the series? Right.
0: I was waiting for the $6 million man crossover. Yeah. Is
1: like
0: that, that more, Andre the Giant? No, I don't think so. I'm more bothered by the Haunted Mansion alien
1: episode.
0: Yes, that was one of the... Uh, Episodes that, at least for most of it, didn't have the spaceship or anything at all. It just had to do with a big old house that uh, uh, Harry was buying to dismantle and salvage.
1: I, I half expected that to turn into salvage meets my favorite Martian. <laughs> it was close. It, it was, was very close. It
0: was close. The, this, this big old house that he bought was supposed to be haunted. Turns out it was really being used as a hideout for an alien who was stranded on Earth and who is a pure energy alien, but he projected a physical form that looked just like uh,
1: Harry. So it's a lot of playing off yourself. And then it's it's building a deflector array in space using the vulture. That was that one is a weird episode.
0: Yeah, there at least they do have to take the vulture into space to help solve the problem. Because the reason the alien couldn't get home is that his force field beam that can reach Earth from his planet every six months couldn't get through the Earth's atmosphere. And it turned out it was because of all the Freon in the atmosphere. Oh, yeah. Spray cans and things like that. I, I I'm thinking, that... you know, yeah, that was a big, big issue in 79. Oh, uh, yeah. I forgot that things that have one, changed also, since that then, one also turns
1: into an episode of Captain Planet for yes, a second. Yes, it
0: does. Yes, it does. I was, I was really bewildered. Uh, so they need to... Um... Now, what I don't know is why they just didn't take the alien into space and have him beamed from there. Well, I guess it had to some be of the
1: tech that Harry was using was causing pain to the alien oh, and shorting true. his lifespan. I don't know if putting him into a Harry-planned object in general was a smart idea then.
0: Yeah. So instead, they, they rig up reflectors to, I guess, oh. boost the signal.
1: Yeah, boost the signal back to his home planet so his home planet can like call him a tractor beam Uber. But that's the thing. This, the, the movie is a little off on its science but it stays kind of within a a vaguely realistic shell and the tv show just throws that out the window early on and then i feel like it backpedals because later episodes of the tv series desperately try to like have a bit more science to them yeah. i get the feeling like for the first half of this, the writers' room just went crazy, and someone went back into the writers' room and said, "What are
0: you doing?" And it would make more sense to me if, as the series went on, they started having some stories that didn't involve the spaceship. But at the beginning, it's a story about a guy in a spaceship, and yet so many of the early episodes, some of them don't use the spaceship at all. There's one where he's bought for second. he's purchased for salvage, Cold War um, military bomb shelters and a little girl winds up trapped in one while it's flooded. We no, you, you don't see the spaceship in that one at all. There's another that's about a treasure that someone thinks is hidden inside a classic Bugatti automobile.
1: Again, I don't think the spaceship is involved. I loved those episodes, actually, though, because it implies that this these people's lives, this salvage operation business, was interesting before the spaceship happened. There's something about the the spaceship was a... A high point to these people, but they were already doing this kind of crazy stuff to some extent beforehand, and they can get away with more than they used to now that they're spaceship famous. I, I liked that. If, if, if they were nothing but the spaceship, I would think these people are not interesting without the spaceship, and they weren't interesting before the spaceship.
0: I guess so. And they, Mel and Skip joined him for the spaceship, but they have formed a team. Maybe it's just me. If I had a spaceship in my back lot, I'm turning into the Lego guy. Yeah. Spaceship. Spaceship. Oh. Uh, but I almost think that they might have gotten some feedback because towards the middle of that first season, they they bring the spaceship back more, and we actually get to see some NASA stuff going on, and space travel becomes another unimportant an part of the series again.
1: Mm-hmm. Also, there's some wonderful through lines in the TV series. They're constant. The, the, the thing that's constantly being put off is the Arctic survey mission. They oh. keep on pu- delaying this because they keep on like, oh, we've still got to do that Arctic survey mission to find an iceberg we can tow back.
0: Yeah, they tease that at the very end of the movie that someone, because he's famous, comes and says, can you get us an iceberg from Antarctica to solve our drought? If you
1: can go to the moon, you can do this. And then it keeps coming up in the series, and then the one episode of season two that aired in America, I believe, was that that episode? Yeah, it was like a two-parter of season two premiere. Two, two-parter of season two premiere? Is them doing the iceberg thing. And that's <laughs> some wonderful actual continuity, and I appreciated that. But that's the sort of project you get. And that's not a space project, but that's a it's it's a – it's a show about logistics on a – irrational scale at times and i like that that's a
0: good way to describe it i like that <laughs> that's kind of the overarching theme i mean p- uh part of the problem with the uh with the iceberg they wind up solving by strapping
1: rocket engines to it but it's still it's about logistics you're right they do kind of make it look like i no, not it's got a large very front section and it's got these kind of rear engines of this tube design sticking up on these pylons it's I don't know, the form kind of reminds me of something. (laughs) Anyway. So,
0: it's a series that, as long as you don't have really set expectations based upon the initial movie.
1: The movie is really, it's a good movie and it's really compelling. And then the TV series is, is the movie, but diluted with just enough TV series silly at times to stretch it out. And if you can deal with the fact that they do that, it's a fun show. But I think we're getting into our final review there, if we're summarizing like that. But there's something about the... They dilute that solution a little to stretch it out across the TV show, but I, there was still a lot of it in there. So,
0: And it is important that the the central cast really does a good job with this. They work well together. They do a good job of making these characters expert at what they do. Very, very smart and yet still very personable, very fun to watch. In addition to Andy Griffith and, and also Richard Jekyll as uh, the FBI agent, we've got Joel Higgins playing uh, Skip, and he's done a lot of TV. He's probably best known as the dad in Silver Spoons uh, years later. And Trish Stewart playing Mel. And they the three of them uh, make a really good ensemble for this.
1: Honestly, J.J. Saunders as Mac who's their guy in Mission Control there, he he is great because he plays straight man and voice of reason to the trio enough times that he is extremely important. There's a lot of instances where if you need an audience surrogate to pull these characters back to say like, I understand what you're suggesting talking, but how do you think that we're getting there to start with? He's the guy you'll have say it, and that is so important. So I really wanted to like, I don't think it would work without him.
0: You're right. He, there are so many times when they need somebody who's really smart to divert the attention of the FBI or solve some really specific problem nobody else can either recognize or reach. He's their guy. And he actually gets like um, uh, opening credits uh, 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 recognition in the second season, doesn't he?
1: Yeah. That's why it's like he doesn't get it for the entire main series. And then America only gets the two-parter of season two. And I'm like, Really? They finally credited him. He's been doing all this and they don't continue.
0: <laughs> yep. But yeah, he, he is a pivotal character and a lot of fun. But yeah, I think you're right. I think we're getting into our, our final questions. So yeah, it's a TV series. So I think we should ask binge or no binge. I'm saying
1: binge. I <laughs> loved this. This is exactly the sort of strange mix of science, excitement and other things, but it's also just the right kind of crazy. I need to divert for a second and actually get the second point of my frustration out. Oh yes, because in the end they end the movie with the most ridiculous thing: they bring Mac back a moon rock. They bring him back a moon rock in a piece of tin foil, a dusty piece of tin foil. They bring him a moon rock that hasn't experienced any atmosphere, made of highly compressed mi- minerals, which means that he's pretty much breathing something that is like extra sharp fiberglass. (laughs) This is the most lung dangerous material you can probably find. And they just hand it to him in unprotected tin foil. And I was freaking out for a moment. Oh, well. (laughs) So the series might just be Max... (laughs) hallucinations in the hospital after the damage that the initial problem did i'm sorry to introduce a coma theory i hate those but it's the best i can figure (laughs) out when they handed him a dusty moon rock like that it bugged me oh well but the series is great the movie is actually i liked the movie a lot more than the series but i liked both a lot
0: well that's good i would definitely say screen the the movie I'd probably say binge. I'm a little more on the fence just because the series goes off in so many different directions. But the cast and the characters really do pull it together. So, yeah, I'd say go ahead and binge. Mm -hmm. It's it's fun to watch.
1: It is just really fun. Although, finding it to watch is very difficult. We'll, We'll give another warning on that. There's not a lot of good transfers out there. But if you can find one, it's worth it.
0: And... If you look hard enough, you can find some DVDs, but I do not think that they are legit. They look pretty sketchy to me. Ah. I just don't think that anybody who actually has the rights to this is interested in, in, in making, them, making it available. Which is
1: disappointing. Yeah.
0: So I'm really glad that you enjoyed this, uh, this series. This is one that was definitely on my list. I, I didn't think it was one that you had even heard of because it was I, pretty obscure.
1: I had not heard of this at all. I'm kind of amazed. This seems so right up my alley in many ways. <laughs> it's it's that it's crazy STEM science in that fun way.
0: Well, that's one of the most fun things about, about doing this project is introducing you to things that you've never heard of, but I just know are gonna <laughs> hit you just the
1: right way. Oh yeah. The next question's difficult though. What's that? Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Mm-hmm. Because I'm split between revive or reboot. Oh. Yeah. And in some ways, this is the perfect time for either one. There is an entire push right now for a privatized space industry. There is a lot of interesting stuff in terms of the concept of material sciences and advancements in technology that would allow for independent manufacture and production of various things. And so I'm looking at this and I can't tell which is the more interesting story. Do you tell? the story of salvage and salvage one set now where they're building the rocket and going up now and kind of building the, the business from the junkyard and ground up again. Or do you tell the, the revival where the jettison company has become a business And they're figuring out their roots again by going back to the project that made them famous and deciding to go back again. And I see interest in either one, and I don't know which way I want to lean. Yeah,
0: you know, because that is so difficult, I really lean towards rest in peace.
1: Oh, really? Wow. I think
0: as fun as this was, it is such a product of its time relative to the technology, relative to what was happening in terms of manned spaceflight it's i I don't know i I can't imagine it certainly being set today and having anything like the same feel i mean i'm not going to trade harry broderick for elon musk that's not
1: going to be the same no yeah it it it, it, that does make some things difficult to that in some ways having that sort of character having that having the harry character be able to to square off against some other competition in that sense might be interesting but i understand what you mean it'd be too easy to write him as these other figures of that industry right now and or even
0: just having him have to deal with that industry right now right. i think yeah, private space flight is going to be su- super important no question about that but now it is becoming just another competitive industry which makes it a very different world than the one harry was in where just the idea of a private individual doing this was the craziest thing anybody had heard. Yeah. yeah, It's a shame, though, because the characters are good, the setting is good, the tone and the style are good. It'd be fun to see more, but I don't know. Just being able to
1: bring uh, Joel Higgins and Tr- Trish Stewart back in a, a revival for even a cameo moment could be fun. That would. But I, I, I can completely understand what you mean, where there's, it, there's a little bit. I want more of this in some ways. The fact <laughs> that there's so little is why I'm wanting to see more of it yeah. in some other form.
0: Yeah, I, I can understand that. And in some ways, the, the biggest hurdles we had to see the characters overcome are the most solved problems today, like computing power, things like that. I still
1: don't know about monohydrazine, though. You know what? Actually, because you point that out. That's why I'm going to stick to I want one of those other ones, because those problems have been solved. But that means there's an entire other set of problems that this glanced over that they can tell in another one. All and right. That's why I'm okay with them doing it again, because it's not going to be the same over again. That part's solved. Computing power is fine. Even for a scrapyard, they can wind up having a whole lot more discussion about their their thrust-to-weight ratio, and things like that. And there's other scientific problems that they can make the the triumphs and the challenges to be able to tell this narrative. And so I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping actually for a reboot because of that, more so.
0: Okay, and you know, if they can really achieve sustainable 1G thrust, mm-hmm. you can go really far in a really short amount of time if you can sustain 1G of thrust. Exactly. They talked about their trip to the moon taking two days versus a week or so for For Apollo, it would take you less than three days to get to Mars if you can sustain 1G thrust and you uh, are at the right time.
1: You want to play salvage the way salvage the TV show. uh, The way salvage 1 played itself, you want to play that in salvage? Make the entire point that everyone thinks they're headed to the moon, and then instead they're heading to Mars. And they're doing a moon slingshot and they throw everybody.
0: Are we turning Salvage into the prequel to The Expanse?
1: I think we are.
0: <laughs> Jettison Salvage becomes the first asteroid mining company.
1: I think we are. And for some reason, the moment I think that, I think I want to have Tori Bellici play something. <laughs> I want that Mythbusters DS. I don't know what's going on there, but yes, kind of. I can go with this. Okay, I'm now more interested in the <laughs> okay. idea of a
0: reboot or or a... um. A revival, if we can connect those dots between this and The Expanse.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad you enjoyed it. it was, I- this was fun to watch. I enjoyed this a lot, so I thank you. This is the sort of stuff I love to see. I love it when you pull me into these ones, because I would have never found this otherwise. So,
0: Well, before we wrap up this time for this episode, uh-huh. we've got a new segment. Yeah, We've got some listener feedback. Ooh! Uh, so I want to share that with uh, with our listeners. A listener named uh, Lawrence Holly wrote to us, and he's been binging uh, the IWMp. Uh, Lawrence, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for for downloading the podcast. We really appreciate it, and thank you very much for writing in with this information. Because um, he said that uh, he especially appreciated the Land of the Lost episode, having watched the nineteen seventy four version religiously when he was a kid in the early 80s i I,
1: i'm still i'm i'm still looking at whether or not i'm buying those dvds and watching more of it myself so i completely feel that
0: and lawrence goes on to say remember how you guys posited what a croft verse show would be like there was something like that what sid and marty croft created two short-lived shows called lost island and horror hotel what? Which combined characters from several different Croft productions into one narrative. Lost Island combines characters from H.R. Puffinstuff, Lidsville, and Land of the Lost. Why? Into a story about a mysterious island run by Enoch, the king of the Sleestack. What? Horror Hotel follows the wacky exploits of Witchy Poo and Hoodoo as they try to manage
1: the Horror Hotel. Oh, 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 wait a minute, you just, you just gave me Croft verse, followed by a strangest version of Faulty Towers. What's going on, okay? <laughs> and uh, and Lauren says that while neither of them are
0: great, he'd pick Lost Island as his favorite since it attempts to tell a dramatic story while using
1: elements from Land of the Lost. It tries to tell a dramatic story while including Lidsville in its list. That's the part I can't That's the really. Part I, I don't know. But the
0: Croftverse is real? Uh, apparently, yeah. The, and the people Sid and Marty Croft extended
1: universe. Oh, I'm pulling out the meme and people thought Avengers was the greatest crossover in cinematic history. And then there's this.
0: Now, I don't remember either of these myself, but, but Lawrence does give some important context. Lost Island and Horror Hotel were segments- in one of Croft's biggest variety TV shows, the Bay City Rollers show. What? Now, I don't know. Is that the same as the Croft Super Show, or was it a different show that was named for the Bay City Rollers? But, uh, but yeah, this was a, a, a variety show produced by the Crofts. It was kind of a swan. So this is a, a Lawrence continuing. Uh, this particular variety show was a sort of the swan song for Croft's televised efforts in the 70s, and it was sort of downhill from there on.
1: Uh so this is kind of the the dramatic climax of all their stuff, which is why they've got it all to mix together here. But right, yeah. they had all
0: the bits and pieces and uh, kind of a last ditch et- effort to uh, to squeeze some life out of these properties. And he he gives one other piece of really interesting information. Uh, Lawrence says to drive home just how big the Croft verse was in the 70s, look no further than their indoor amusement park that was based in Atlanta. In the later part of that decade. There was a Croft indoor amusement park. How? I I follow
1: so many amusement park uh, YouTube channels and watch so much content about this. How do I not know about this place?
0: We have to scour defunct land and all those other uh, channels that you've introduced me to to find out more about this Croft amusement park.
1: I'm just immediately calling out Kevin Perger as to why I haven't seen an episode about this yet. I am going to message on Twitter. My goodness.
0: Well, these definitely seem like they are worth some, some further investigation, both the theme park and also those, uh, those segments from the, the Variety show. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if we learn more, we'll, uh, we'll definitely uh, mention them. I've, and-
1: I've, 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 had, the, I've had a cr- creeping dread the fact that there's going to be more Croft content coming at some point. Oh, it's coming more out of the Croft crypt. So we will, we really we can see about pulling those in at that time. Absolutely.
0: And in the meantime, uh, Lawrence, thank you very much for writing in with this information. And again, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, it was really, uh, really fun to learn all that. Yay! And anybody else listening, we really invite uh, your comments, your additional information, your requests or questions about anything that we've watched or, or talked about uh you can find uh the podcast and you can reach us at the website immproject.com and that's where you will find all of our back episodes also a contact page if you'd like to email us link to our uh discord if you'd like to contact us there also a list, uh, link to our patreon if uh, and you can support us there uh that would be terrific best way to support the show though is to tell your friends keep downloading or uh give us a rating oh we on- we,
1: we should we should put a much higher Tier level or a much higher goal on the Patreon about buying that amusement park. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing if we can't revive it. That'd that would be terrifying. W- that perfect. would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, oh, and you can also find the, uh, the podcast on Twitter at
1: IMMPCast. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found most places as item crafting, be that on Twitter or on YouTube or some places like Twitch. I'm item crafting live in order to cover my bases there.
0: And you can find me most places as ByMatthewPorter. So that's at ByMatthewPorter on Twitter. You can go to ByMatthewPorter.com to find out some more stuff. Uh, ByMatthewPorter on Twitch. And um, there's probably other places where I am also ByMatthewPorter. But that's where I'm, I'd say I'm most active is on the, that website, on Twitter, and soon to be active again on Twitch. Yay! So thank you very much, everyone. We, uh, we really enjoyed talking about Salvage One. I'm so glad that you enjoyed watching it, Ian. <sighs> And we will be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch.